Good evening. It's seven o'clock and time now for In Context with Patrick Boynes. Well, good evening. It's great to have you with us this evening. Welcome once again to In Context here on truthfm.uk. This is the radio show where we look at a passage from Scripture and where we'll always aim to look at things within their context. You can find us here on Internet Radio by going to truthfm.uk or you can find us on the Truth. .fm app, or maybe you're listening to this on a podcast. Well, however you got here, it's uh, jolly good to have you with us once more. My name is Patrick. I am a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. He's my teacher. I'm learning to follow him day by day as I travel the journey of life. And uh, yep, we are on a journey. We're traveling through the writings of Luke, stopping each step of the journey to spend a little time to admire the views along the way. Indeed, speaking of journeys, uh, just a few hours ago, I returned from a weekend away up north in the Lake District, and uh, on my journey south, I stopped for a few minutes to visit the old church at Easby near Richmond in North Yorkshire. Uh, it's a beautiful part of the country. It was a rather pleasant visit, as it happens. And on entering the porch of the church, I was met by a group um, who I uh, discovered were known as the Marauders, um, apparently after the Vikings. Well, they were there to take care of the grounds around the church, uh, mowing the lawn, trimming the hedges, doing all those kinds of things, and um, around the delightful ruined abbey beside it. Well, as for the church, um, its uh, its roots go back to Saxon times, somewhere in the 7th century AD. And um, not that most of the building is, um, is newer than that. But what I found particular, particularly interesting was the, uh, the presence of a number of rather large medieval wall paintings dating all the way back to the 13th century. Um, they were even more delightful than the ruined abbey beside, and uh, the paintings were in remarkable condition for their age. I'll, um, I'll tell you a little bit more about those um, a little later. Now, last week on In Context, we found ourselves in the town of Nazareth up north in Galilee. This was the place where Jesus had been brought up and he had gone into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as had been his custom. 
Well, we left off with Jesus having just read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and the passage can be found towards the end of the book in what we now know as chapter 61. And it's uh, it's a truly remarkable passage. Uh, and, and it becomes it becomes something of a um, a, a statement mission or a, a, a statement of mission, I should say, as 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 foretold by the prophets, but but was now being fulfilled with the coming of the Messiah, the the Anointed One of God. Well, the text is from the latter part of the book of the prophet Isaiah, the text which Jesus read, which Luke records Jesus reading. Um, yeah, it's from the latter part of the book of the prophet Isaiah, uh, a part of the book that has much to say of the role of God's servant. And at times the servant appears to be the people of Israel, and then at other times the servant is a remnant of that people. But ultimately the servant in Isaiah is seen as the righteous one who would make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities, so says the prophet. And in reading that, we might think of the suffering servant, a picture that comes a little earlier in the scroll, but one which speaks of the coming Messiah who will make all things well. And so Jesus has just read words of hope. Um, he's read good news for the poor. He's read of liberty to the captives, of sight to the blind, uh, a message of freedom for those who were oppressed. Well, here is what he goes on to say. And we're finding ourselves now in uh, what we know is the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and marvelled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them 
but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Well, what an absolutely incredible turn of events. You know, one one would like to think that any announcement of good news would be immediately and wholeheartedly welcomed by those who heard. I mean, that would seem to be the most reasonable response, but people are generally less than reasonable to say nothing of being ungrateful. I rather suspect that one could have heard a pin drop, as they say, following the announcement from Jesus that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is certainly not what those in the synagogue were expecting to hear. I mean, had certainly never heard anything like it before. Jesus not only claims to be the prophet who brings good news, but also the one who will bring deliverance. He's claiming to be none other than the one they have been waiting for, and surely they must all have understood that. But the reaction appears to be somewhat muddled. At first, Luke tells us, all spoke well of him. But then they asked, is this not Joseph's son? You know, I wonder how often, if ever, Jesus had read from the scriptures from that very spot. He had certainly heard them being read from there hundreds of times before, but this time it was different. Were those listening initially impressed with his eloquence, or perhaps by the authority or conviction with which he must have read? You know, did they, as the penny or denarius began to drop, one by one begin to question the implications of this announcement? Well, evidently, they were well aware of his activities in other places. Indeed, they seem to have been aware of miracles um, that we know nothing about. But here it was different. Here... In the synagogue in Nazareth, it was different. This was the, the hometown of Jesus. And there were many within that synagogue who had watched him grow up week by week and most likely seen him following in his presumed father's footsteps. Well, speaking of Joseph, he gets a mention, but we know nothing more of him. 
He was evidently known within the synagogue at Nazareth, but as to whether or not he was still alive, we we simply don't know. And And here was his son, long grown up, reading the scriptures, you know, where maybe Joseph himself had done so before him. But nothing like this had ever happened before. Not only was the announcement radical, but it was particularly personal, and it demanded that all who heard make a response, and what a response it produced. I mean, it was certainly radical, but it was also seen to be, quite simply, outrageous. From the very outset of his public teaching, Jesus anticipates conflict and rejection. And this was always the way it was going to be. No doubt all who first read these words from Luke were well aware of the turmoil already created by the teachings of Jesus throughout the world, it seems. Well, this is, this is where it all began. Do you remember what Simeon had said all those years before in the temple in Jerusalem? Hmm? Behold, he said, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Well, for those who would follow the teachings of Jesus, even today, we should be prepared for the conflict and rejection that will follow. This is how it's always been. It seems as if the battle for the hearts and minds of mankind had entered a, a, a new phase and nothing was ever going to be the same ever again. So yes, Jesus anticipates the conflict and the rejection, and he addresses this reaction in three ways. Firstly, he quotes a proverb, one that reveals their thoughts. He says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Well, there will be those who would be calling for proof. The problem is that even when proof is given, it will never be enough for some. Those who are not inclined towards God will never see his hand at work, not even if they were to see his authenticating signature. The mention of Capernaum here is somewhat interesting, as this is the first time Luke has mentioned the place, and maybe he's anticipating what he's shortly to make known to us. But then Jesus quotes another proverb. He says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. 
Oh, this simply reflects the way in which the messengers of God were repeatedly rejected by the so-called people of God, and it's a theme which we will encounter frequently in the writings of Luke. And then, thirdly, Jesus presents a, a short recollection of Israel's history in the times of Elijah and Elisha. This was certainly a very dark period in the life of Israel. The, the people had rejected God. Idolatry was everywhere. But God was always merciful. But at times his mercy was directed beyond Israel and into the world of Gentiles to a, to a widow in Sidon and to a, a military commander in Syria. Well, not only does this foreshadow the social diversity of the mission of Jesus, but it shows that this has always been the way with God. God is always impartial in his dealings with mankind, a key theme running through the writings of Luke. God is always impartial. Well, rather than listen and learn from the great teacher, the crowd there in the synagogue in uh, Nazareth, they, they responded with deep anger. The idea that Gentiles should be blessed at the expense of Israel, well, that was beyond acceptable in their thinking. But it was true. And history would soon be repeating itself. So they rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. I mean, it looks as if it's all going to be over even before the end of, you know, scene one. <laughs> but, but passing through their midst, Luke tells us he went away. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this brief encounter introduces us, the readers, to what will be the responses of both Jews and Gentiles to the mission of Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, and that's the sound of the mission bell, meaning we'll need to see what uh, uh, what we might glean from uh, this section of scripture we've been looking at. This is our, our mission segment. Time to, to think about some missional implications. And remember, when we think of mission, we want always to be thinking first of the mission of God, and then consider our place within his mission. And as we've probably said before, of course we have, and we'll say it again, it's not the people of God who have a mission, it's the mission of God that has a people. Well, last week in this segment, we were thinking about the importance of reading Scripture, particularly the importance of reading Scripture out loud within assemblies of believers. And I would imagine that most of us live within societies where 
you know, the majority, not all, but where the majority are able to read and write. And this was certainly not always the case, and it certainly is not the case in every part of the world today. It's estimated that uh, a couple of hundred years ago, here in the UK, only half of the population were literate, meaning that the other half were dependent upon having scripture read for them. And if we go back further still to medieval times, as little as only 10% of the population were able to read. So I was thinking of this as I stood earlier today observing these frescoes, these 13th century wall paintings in the church at Easby in North Yorkshire. They really were rather splendid. I mean, they were fascinating. And if we weren't on radio, I would happily show you some examples. But we are, so I can't. Uh, I could perhaps try to describe them to you at great length, but, um, well, they'd probably end up looking different in your mind than they do in mine right now. During the Reformation, they had been whitewashed as part of an attempt to conceal imagery um, uh, during those days. But in the Victorian era, they were rediscovered. And then at the end of the last century, they were restored uh, to the, uh, uh, the splendid condition in which we can see them today. On the North Wall, there were scenes from the early chapters of the book of Genesis depicting events in and beyond the Garden of Eden. One image that I found particularly intriguing was that of Eve being produced from a rib of the sleeping Adam, uh, I must say it wasn't quite as I had imagined it, but uh, well, there we go. At the end of the scene was the exiled couple, banished from the garden, showing Adam digging in the soil and Eve spinning thread whilst being rebuked from above by an angel. And if you've seen enough of these sort of paintings before... The idea of sinners being rebuked by God from above is not particularly uncommon. Well, on the opposite wall, on the south wall, there were pictures from the nativity of Jesus and others also. But these began with the angel Gabriel making his announcement to Mary. And... Um, then um, there was the birth in what looked like a rather unusual stable, followed by the startled shepherds in the field being told of the birth of the Saviour in the rather unusual stable type thing. You know, I've no idea how often I've driven past Richmond over the years, uh, but I'd never visited this church before. But I'd certainly recommend a visit if ever you happen to be up that way. Um, you know, in, instead of going by Scotch Corner, take a little detour through, um, well, it, 
Easby's just north of Richmond, I think. And uh, I've got to say, they really do look so much better than they sound on the radio. Well, as I was inspecting these pictures, I was thinking of the reason for them having been painted all those hundreds of years ago. Like so many similar scenes depicted in stained glass, these were there to remind worshippers of what were seen to be particularly significant biblical truths. We need to be reading scripture and we need to be listening to Scripture being read, but it can be terribly helpful to see Scripture depicted in some form or another, uh, in, in, in a, a visual fashion. And, uh, and though this might be particularly useful for those unable to read, it can also be helpful for those less inclined to read, such as many within our modern societies today. And maybe this is why televisual or filmed dramatizations can, in the right context, be immensely helpful to convey the stories of Scripture today. Just the other day I was speaking with a lady who was to be organising a children's dramatic presentation of a major biblical event, and even though I understand that much in the way of scenery and props was to be improvised, the retelling of the stories in a dramatic fashion can be such a formative part of our learning. So, back to thinking of these medieval wall paintings created some 800 years ago. I was mindful of the intention of wanting to communicate the stories of God, of wanting to remind, to reinforce, to repeat, to, to reenact to remember the things which God has revealed to us. And thinking of how many, not hundreds, but surely thousands of people had maybe seen these pictures in years gone by, uh, you know, before they were whitewashed um, at the time of the Reformation. I'm, I'm persuaded that there's no better way than to read the scriptures. But for those who cannot read, or for those who are disinclined to read, or even disinclined to listen to reading, let's think of ways in which we might tell the stories of God in ways that might yet attract the attention of a generation who desperately need to know. I don't know, maybe, maybe you're an artist, maybe you're a sculptor, maybe you're an actor or you enjoy producing films, maybe you're a talker, maybe you're a writer or a blogger, maybe you're a storyteller, whatever you are and wherever you are. We all have a story to make known to a world surrounded 
by so much that is simply not true. We have a message of truth. We have the stories of God. We have not the fake news of the world, but the good news of the kingdom of heaven. May God give to us opportunities to share his message with a world in such desperate need of Jesus. And may he give us opportunities to share that message in ways that might yet be understood. So yes, as we come to the end of this week's edition, uh, why don't you let me know your thoughts? You can message us on Facebook, look for the truthfm.uk page. You can tweet us at truthfm.uk or you can email me at patrick at truthfm.uk and I really would love to hear from you. And so, uh, until next week, let me wish for you God's richest blessings. Thank you for being with us once more. <laughs>